Hello and welcome to the first episode for Hillary 2017 of The Beacon, a podcast produced by Oxford International Relations Society. I am your host, Zoe Hodge, and this week we are taking a look at Eastern Europe post-1989, how it has changed, how successful this change has been, and finally why the region has seen the rise of the far right in recent years. First off, I turned to Dr. Thomas Schwerczak, a lecturer in economics at University College London's School of Slavonic and East European Studies, to ask him what happened in Eastern Europe in the years after 1989. The basic idea, of course, the basic task was, was the same for all of, all of these uh, countries, which, is, which was how to dismantle the previous system of what uh, was officially called, you know, centrally planned economy, but what really was a more of a command economy, which is to say, you know, the ambition, having it all centrally planned, was always frustrated by the realities of life. And so, uh, by the late 1980s, it was sort of clear to everybody that uh, most of the economic life either runs on a certain inertia, you know, let's do it the same way as last year, or in terms of, um, you know, commands that, that uh, sometimes even randomly came from the center and uh, the, the productivity and the, the sort of technological sophistication was slowing and definitely the gap between those countries and the West was, was growing larger. So uh, from 1990 onwards, the question was, you know, how can we reform this? How can we sort of, uh, as quickly as possible, turn these uh, command economies into market-oriented economies that would have competitive uh, private sectors and uh, develop capital markets and you know, have broad respect for private property and, uh, and enterprise and things like this. Everything that has happened since has been, uh, to, to, to a great extent, guided by this by this basic reform agenda, which of course later on was also informed by the by the ambition on the international uh, scene to uh, join the respected world organizations such as the European Union, you know, the OECD, let's say, uh, organizations like this, right? And so most of the economic history from the institutional point of view is, is this is this is the, the basic simple story that we see there. And in terms of, you know, the, the, the everyday macroeconomics, you know, there the individual countries would have more of a difference between them. Uh, some have been more successful than others, right? Uh, of course, clear example of country that has never quite managed to take off in terms of market-based sort of uh, healthy growth is the, the example is Ukraine, where in six or in 2010, the situation for the for the common person on the ground doesn't seem to be that much different in terms of living standards from what it was in 1988. And at the other end, you could find countries like Slovenia, where you know where the living standards are fairly close to what you would find in in various parts of Austria, let's say. Right. So um, there you have more of a range of of, of fates and, uh, and and developments. Professor Jan Kubik, the director of the SSEES at University College London, an expert on the politics and culture of the region, agrees. So in, in the literature, usually we, we do not talk about transition anymore. Even at the beginning, we many people dropped the word transition and replaced it with the word transformations in plural. Uh, one reason was that from the very beginning, some people were doubting whether this is really moving towards anything resembling liberal democracy. Then, after a while, it uh, was quite clear that while some countries were moving in the direction of liberal democracy or, or close to it, some others were not at all. Some kind of stalled in some strange in-between arrangement, and, and some were actually stuck in um, some kind of post-communist authoritarian system. There are about 27 countries altogether that emerged from communism, and 
only quite a few in Central Europe sort of made it to the relatively well um, set up liberal democracy. And even more interestingly, after a while, you see a lot of slow and sometimes even faster reversal. So at the moment, what you see, particularly in uh, places like Poland and Hungary, is backsliding. The distinction between the countries that emerge from the Soviet Union itself and the countries that emerge from the rest of the Soviet bloc, that's a, that's a huge difference. Because if you look at the map and you look at where the countries that are most authoritarian and least uh, democratic, they are almost all, if not all, uh, the countries of the former Soviet Union. With the exception, say, the three Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, that actually, in the case of Estonia, are the leaders of democratization. The other two are doing relatively well, okay, but Estonia is particularly can be very proud of, of its, its successes in, on, in this regard. You know, if you define communism as the system which has a state-run economy, command economy, nobody is moving in this direction. If you define communism as a one-party system on the political side, nobody's moving in this direction either. So rather you have the, the attempts, various attempts, to undermine several elements of what I like to call democratic architecture. Mm-hmm. For example, in Poland and Hungary, some elements of the rule of law, like the independence of the judiciary, particularly of the branches of the judiciary whose task is to protect the constitution. So that's yeah. that's the problem. Uh, in the former Soviet Union, so most importantly in Russia itself, after the initial several years of democratizing, quite clearly the, the trend under Putin is in the opposite direction. And for a while, for example, Freedom House would classify Russia as uh, defective, authoritarianism or something like weak authoritarianism. Now it's firmly classified as an authoritarian. Oh, wow. Um, You have an enormous range of outcomes after 20-some years. Pretty remarkable, actually. Now I turn to Thomas Bladinets, a civil engineer based in Warsaw who takes a keen interest in the fight for democracy in the post-Soviet landscape. He's especially preoccupied by Belarus and has been involved with many organizations challenging Alexander Lukashenko's regime there. Okay, uh, Belarus is post-Soviet country, which lies between Poland and uh, Russia. And because of its uh, geographic uh, uh, placement and because of its history, it was always a border between East and West. It, it lies between uh, Poland, which is a member of NATO and European Union, and Russia, which is also a very powerful and expanding country. So uh, Belarus is a place of uh, clash of those two uh, political blocs. President of Belarus uh, from uh, 1994 is President Lukashenko, which is a very authoritarian leader, a dictator, in fact, and he is very pro-Russian and he has very strong ties with Vladimir Putin, and he is in political and military alliance with Putin. It was very strong connected like this. So from my one side, there were people which wanted democracy, but they were also pro-Western and pro-independence. And uh, from the other side, all people which were pro-Russian, or vast majority of people which were pro-Russian, they were against the democracy. Uh, the people which were pro-Russian and uh, 
in the same time democratic uh, i don't know i never had about this uh, such people in that time so if do you think out of all of the post 1989 eastern european states that mm-hmm. belarus is the worst in terms of becoming more liberal in some aspects it's the worst because um, for many years uh, belarus was considered to be a last dictatorship in europe Lukashenko is a leader for, for many, many years. And uh, when we were hoping that uh, Russia will become uh, more democratic and uh, more liberal, uh, Belarus was still a kind of a Soviet, uh, like a museum of communism. Nothing was changing there. Many people uh, were nostal- felt nostalgic to the Soviet Union, uh, even from Russia, were going to Belarus because uh, really nothing changed there. There were still monuments of Lenin. But uh, from uh, present day perspective, uh, some things in Belarus are not so bad because if you compare it with Ukraine, you see that Belarus is a very stable country. Uh, Ukraine is very unstable. We really hope that Ukraine will be a democratic and uh, stable country, but in fact it's very corrupted and there is a lot of political forces and a lot of rich people in Ukraine fighting each other. The level of crime is very, very high in Ukraine. And if you try to um, do anything in uh, Ukraine, like start your business, you have to pay bribes and uh, you have to pay bribes to many different people and you never know if you will be safe because uh, after some time, uh, some another uh, mafia boss or some another gangster will uh, rule this area of activity you do and then your bribes are useless. And in Belarus, there is a very low um, typical normal crime because uh, the rule is very, the authority is very strong and police is very strong. So some people say that it's, there is no sense to be a um, thief in uh, Belarus. It's a lot better to be a police uh, officer because you then can steal a lot more. So uh, Belarus is a stable country and uh, a safe country but it's still dictatorship it's uh, and it's still not a place we like if we care about human rights or uh, liber- liberal democracy or democracy at all but so and- lots of people say that um poland is actually the country that is the winner if you like of the mm-hmm. post 1989 uh, situation would you agree with that uh, poland changed a lot uh, and I remember this process of change. Uh, I remember that Poland was very, very poor, very uh, devastated, uh, very grey and very not interesting country. Uh, I remember that uh, when I was a child, my mother uh, got seven dollars somewhere and uh, it was like we were rich because of these seven dollars. Now it's just funny. But then $7 was a very, very big amount of money for us. Uh, So, yes, Poland uh, changed rapidly. And uh, both in political sense, we became a liberal democracy and uh, elections were not falsified. Uh, Elections were fair. Uh, We have free media, we have pluralism. And everything works just fine. Uh, For me, it was obvious that it should be like this, but when you, you compare Poland to other countries like Belarus and Ukraine, 
you can see that not uh, it was not so obvious that we will be so lucky. So uh, when you uh, when you look at uh, at Warsaw today and uh, Warsaw from my childhood, the difference is uh, very very big. In communist times, uh, Warsaw was just a place with blocks of flats. Now we have skyscrapers. Now we have uh, modern uh, shops and so on. So so Warsaw does not differ much from Western cities. And uh, 20 years ago, or something like this, we were like uh, three, third world. So, uh, so yes, definitely, I feel that uh, we uh, we were lucky and uh, we were winner of these changes. So, what are people's conceptions of the country's old regimes? Professor Kubik works especially on cultural studies and co-authored the book 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Commemoration, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. You know, I I do a lot of work on on memory and, you know, again, without going into details, memory always plays tricks on you. So people remember things selectively, people remember things that I guess you would say are simply not true sometimes and and, and so on. So there's a lot of creative work when we try to recall something, particularly that we do it usually collectively. So we tell the various stories to each other and therefore we create versions of the past that maybe are, you know, they're they're always somewhat uh, creatively distorted. but what you, if you ask people, uh, if you would ask them about the, would you like to go back to um, the oppressive side of communism, everybody say no, of course not. Uh, if you ask them, well, so would you like to have the media completely controlled by the state? No, everybody says no, we don't want that. But when you would ask them about, you know, how was your life? How do you remember your life? Uh, then quite a few people will say it wasn't that bad. They are sometimes simply unhappy that they are living in a society where you have to compete, where you have to work really hard, where you often, even when you work hard, cannot <clears throat> succeed. You, you often cannot find jobs and so on. And one thing communism gave people was this very low level security. There was no unemployment in the sense that uh, the factories would employ people whom they didn't need. So there was this concept of unemployment on the job. Mm -hmm. And so the the excess of labor force was kind of taken care of by this excessive bloated employment. Uh, So the factories, uh, various enterprises functioned as, uh, I guess, some sort of unemployment agency to to a degree. Uh, so people remember that, you know, older people, that, you know, they, they had this kind of low level but guaranteed uh, existence where their basic needs usually, not always, but usually for most of the people were taken care of. Uh, there is a, There was a lot of poverty under communists, people forget about it. There is, though, a lot of new poverty generated under capitalism. So you know, those who are poor, those who one way or another did manage to succeed are unhappy and are nostalgic. Certain elements of the old system. And is this nostalgia for um, the security of the old regime? Is that what leads 
or drives people towards voting for extreme solutions or extremist parties? Definitely, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, the support for those more extreme politicians uh, has, is complex. For various groups in the society, it's various roots. Uh, for some people, it is, as it is, you know, people voting for Brexit or people voting for Trump, mm-hmm. for you would think no good reason except just for the hell of it to to create mayhem to to imp- sometimes it's a mixture of anger impatience with some kind of disillusionment with the way the, the political elites run run various countries so very, very, it's quite complex when you think about it but part of it is yeah it used to be that we were more or less secure in this kind of basic existential sense, and then now we are not. Now we see tremendous disparities of wealth also, which is driving a lot of, uh, I guess, anger. Uh, the, the data is, is, as you know, absolutely clear that this is a process that is moving forward with this kind of scary speed of... of the differentiation of the society and the, the, the amount of wealth control that people at the top is growing, and it is pr- quite pronounced in Russia, and, and, and not in every post-communist country, but in Russia it's a very pronounced in Ukraine, where you had enormous problems with corruption and, and enormous problems with kind of collusion of political power and wealth. Um, and many people see that and are are either fed up or are kind of giving up on the system. And when they see something somewhat crazy and bizarre and yet maybe promising something new, the the word hope is often expressed, as it was in, in the States in American elections. Mm-hmm. So And they, they go for, for the unknown, literally, it seems, hoping for some... A possible change. Uh, you know, if, if someone gets angry at what's going on now in the present, they tend to kind of overvalue things that happened in the past. I mean, see them in a more positive light. What about opinions towards the EU? Professor Kubik again. Um, I was just looking at the last Eurobarometer, and, and most people in those countries have trust the EU and have a good opinion of it, but not, not that the, you know those majorities are not decisive. So there are people who are of the opinion, for one reason or another, that the EU is the source of problems. And, and for some of those people, those problems are cultural, meaning that they see the EU as the embodiment of the decadent West. The West that is, uh, say, for example, secular to the point that they cannot accept that is the West is accepting things like gay marriage, uh, a certain loose in their mind standards on abortion and things like that. And so it is sort of a form of conservative reaction, often certainly in Poland, uh, associated with religiosity, or a certain kind of a more kind of radical religiosity, more st- stronger attachment to traditional conservative values. So there's a part of people who reject EU in the name of this, what they feel, the superiority of their own cultures. 
Professor Schwercheck has another perspective. If you actually look at the political map of, of Poland in the last two presidential elections, right, and this is something that's been pointed out uh, uh, several times, the, the Polish electoral map shows that most of the uh, most of the support for the law and justice candidates, which was Andrzej Duda, and before that it was, uh, you know, Jaroslav Kaczynski against uh, Bronislaw Komorowski, and before that it was Lech Kaczynski. So most of the, the territories that vote for uh, for the law and justice candidates in majority are that part of Poland that before the First World War fell under Russian Russian rule, right? Which is really weird that, you know, a hundred years later, you should see that that pattern basically reproduce itself in Polish electoral politics, you know, in 2015. Now, if you go, if you dig deeper, and this is, you know, where, where the economic historian in me would uh, sort of uh, would like to speculate is, uh, that division, you know, of Poland also produced lots of divisions in terms of the economic structure, long-term economic structure. So, for example, if you look at the extent of uh, railroad network, right, the part of Poland that used to be Russian still has a, a less dense railroad network than the part that used to be German and Austrian, right? Uh, if you look at the development of schools, you know, the density and the quality and, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, um, you know, technical schools versus other kinds, you know, again, you would find that the, that the Russian part, you know, the Russian portion of Poland, pre-First World War Poland, that shows up on the political map today as, you know, the, the people who support um, the, the, the law and justice candidates. When we, come, when we come to, you know, what is the economic underpinning of this, somehow the most recent sort of everyday run-of-the-mill business cycle developments do not seem to be, you know, what's going on here. There's apparently something deeper structural sort of that might actually span across generations. I think it also must be finding expression in terms of how the, the local societies and communities work in these various places. So not only can the support for authoritarianism of right-wing agendas be cultural but also structural. Does this have parallels outside of Eastern Europe perhaps? Back to Professor Kubik. Yeah, maybe maybe a similarity there with Britain in terms of thinking a pre-EEC EU world was um, fantastic and, and, and great. <laughs> when in reality there's a reason we entered it in the first place. Well, yeah. Exactly. It's the, you know, the same thing with, with Trump who, who suddenly starts saying, I'm going to make uh, America great again. And you kind of start scratching your head so when? You know, the greater than now, than when, when seventies and the fifties and the sixties, and then you think, okay, so before the the uh, the, the, the dramatic change of the sixties, uh, the fifties were nice for the white people, but before the civil rights, it was still a very racist society. In in Eastern Europe, you you have also this this thing, you know, who's past if you were in a privileged position in the old regime under the old regime then well you know that, that that's certainly a, a powerful kind of nostalgic thing to say yeah. a feeling you have yeah i was yeah i was nice yeah it was bad but if you were in prison that's a different memory thomas bladinietz is not unconcerned about the future either i'm not happy about uh, uh, there's uh, the political direction uh, our present uh, authority is going to. I believe that uh, our present government, the law and justice, is uh, going in uh, uh, direction of aut- authoritarianism. 
but it's a part of um, whole European process. We can see it in United States where Donald Trump won, and we have an um, example of Brexit and the popularity of uh, right-wing populist uh, parties like uh, Marie Le Pen in France. Uh, so it's not just about Poland, it's about um, sentiment in whole Europe. Mm. Poland is uh, afraid about uh, changes uh, which are happening now in Europe, especially they are afraid of uh, immigration of uh, Muslims. Uh, we have very few Muslims in Poland, that's, uh, so we don't have really contact with them. Uh, immigrants don't want to go to Poland because Poland is too poor for them. So uh, it's not that we really have this kind of problem, but people are afraid. People are uh, hear about uh, terrorist attacks in Europe and they believe that uh, this liberal and the left um, way of uh, organizing Europe was not uh, not right. It was not, especially when European Union started to push Poland to get uh, some part of those uh, immigrants. Uh, people really did not like it because before we had a very liberal uh, uh, government. Uh, of uh, civic platform, Donald Tusk, which is leader of European Union and now is from this party. And uh, Poland was very pro-European. It was always very pro-European. But uh, after European Union started to push us to get uh, uh, some quota of immigrants to Poland and started to, to threat Poland, uh, that Poland will be punished if we will not get them. Uh, we will not take them. People started to go radically in the right uh, direction, in direction of far-right parties. Uh, and uh, law and justice won. I don't think the problem is that uh, they are conservative. That's fine. It's normal that sometimes you have more liberal, sometimes you have more conservative uh, government, and that's natural. The problem is that they started to break laws or uh, to bend laws. We are going in direction of authoritarianism like Viktor Orban Hungary. Uh, so, for example, in uh, public media, they, uh, the government of law of, of, and justice uh, fired almost all journalists which were not uh, supporting the government. And now the public uh, television is really very, very it's just a propaganda. Uh, it's, uh, they are talking only about uh, in favor of government. And from other side, they are not closing uh, independent private television. If you want to listen to uh, another point of view, you can still just change the channel and uh, you can listen to it. But uh, we don't know how long it will last. But Professor Sverchek has the final word. You know where is this going to go? My 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 hope is that uh, um, you know for all the fiery and radical rhetoric, right, most of these populist and radical movements, when they clash with reality of government, uh, reality always wins, right? When it, when it, when it crash, uh, clashes with anything, so I, I hope that or I, I expect that a lot of the lot of the radical um, um, proposals are going to be watered down. And uh, if they're not, then they're going to lead to considerable disillusionment, and then the, and these uh, movements are going to be voted out of office. How do they try? 
to prevent this by various, let's say, electoral reforms or, you know, um, even suppression of, of or, or limitations on the, the freedom of speech or, you know, uh, the press freedoms and things like this. Many of these populists, some of whose economic instincts, of course, are, let's say, protectionists, if they implemented large chunks of their agenda, I, you know, if they tried to cut themselves off from the Western markets, let's say, it would not bode well for their economies. And so instead, you know, the political fights are fought out in arenas which do not have much of economic import, such as gay marriage, right? So, as I say, either they, they back, back away from these most, most uh, sort of radical plans to, you know, to uh, basically deglobalize their economies, either they back away or if they go through with this, you know, there will be a, a, a swift payback at the, at the next elections. And that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. If you would like to hear the full interviews for each of our guests, the links are in the description. If you want to share your thoughts on this topic, we are accepting submissions to our blog at oxirsoc.com. Thank you so much to all our guests. And as ever, our partners, the University of Kent's Brussels School of International Studies and John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And to podcastthemes.com for our intro and outro music. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.